let's turn our attention to our text this morning. Let me encourage you to stand if you have the ability. Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 28, pens the following words. Therefore, having put away all falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Give or Let the thief no longer steal. But rather, let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with everyone in need. You may be seated. You're taking notes this morning. The first point on your outline is this. Our new life in Christ should be marked by an increasingly transformed tongue. Our new life in Christ should be marked by an increasingly transformed tongue. Let me draw your attention back specifically to verse 25. Paul says, Therefore, having put away all falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Paul presents us first with a negative command here in verse 25. He says, Therefore, having put away all falsehood. What's the question that we should ask every time we see the word therefore in Scripture? What is therefore, therefore? Well, the word therefore here in verse 25 connects us back to the preceding verses, specifically verses 22 through 24. Just let your eyes kind of glance back there for a moment. Verses 22 through 24, where Paul exhorts us again to put off the old self, which belongs to our former manner of life and is corrupt through its deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds, put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness And holiness. You see, that's conversion language right there. Putting off and putting on. That's conversion language. The therefore that Paul uh, begins verse 25 with connects us back to those verses. What Paul is saying here is in light of having put off the old self and put on the new self, again, conversion language, we are also to put away all falsehood. That's a part of what it means to to put away the old self. It's to put away falsehood. That word translated put away, if you have the English Standard Version, lay aside if you're using the New American Standard. It's a very strong word. Carries the idea of discarding or stripping off or casting away or separating or departing from. Paul says, put away all falsehood. Get it away, strip it off, discard it, cast it away, separate, depart from it. The writer of Hebrews uses the same word in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, a familiar text to probably most of us. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us, and here it is, lay aside every weight and every sin that clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You see, as believers, we are to put away, to cast aside lying. That's a part of the filthy garments of the old man. We are to put on a new manner of life, and that new manner is a life that is marked with truthfulness, an increasingly transformed tongue. Where we were once liars, now we are to be speakers of the truth. You know, lying or falsehood is the native tongue of the lost world that we live in. We're immersed in a culture that oozes with deception and falsehood. Take the case of the baker who suspected that the farmer who was supplying his butter was giving him short weight. 
His suspicions were confirmed when he carefully checked the weight of the butter over several days. Incensed, he had the farmer arrested. But the judge threw the case out when the farmer explained that he had no scales and instead used a one-pound loaf, a loaf of bread purchased from the baker, used on his own counterbalance. J.C. Ryle, again, one of my favorite old dead guys once said this. He said, think about how much falsehood and deceit there is in the world. How much exaggeration, how many truths are added to, untruths are added to a simple story. How many things are left out if it doesn't serve the speaker's interest to tell them. How few there are around us whom we can say that we trust their word without question. Let me ask you this question. Can others trust your word without question? Can you be trusted without question? Let's talk about a lie here for a minute. Paul says, put off all falsehood, cast it aside, get rid of it, discard it from yourself. What is a lie? What is that falsehood? Well, in simple terms, a lie is anything that is void of the full truth. It's any statement or any action that's designed to deceive another person. Lying includes far more than just telling direct falsehoods. When we exaggerate by adding falsehood to that which starts out as truth, we lie. When we embellish stories to make ourselves look better or to make others look worse, we lie. When we change the facts to spare someone's feelings, we lie. When we fudge on our taxes, we lie. When we cheat at school, we lie. When we betray someone's confidence, we lie. When we engage in the flattery of others, we lie. When we make excuses to cover our failures and our shortcomings, we lie. When we withhold information in order to mislead or deceive others, we lie. You ask yourself the question, well, what about a white lie? What about just the the little fudging of the truth here and there? What about the white lie? Well, Spurgeon said this, He who tells little lies will soon think nothing of great ones, for the principle is the same. If we train ourselves that it's okay to tell little white lies, then we will soon tell great lies, because the principle is the same. It's the principle of falsehood. It's the principle of deceit. It's the principle of trickery. You see, truth has no degrees or shades. A half-truth is a whole lie, and a white lie is really black. But we're so enculturated that many of us lie without even knowing what we're doing. Paul moves from the negative prohibition there to put off falsehood to the positive command. Look back at your Bible there. He says, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. So there's a put off, but then there's a put on here as well. We're to put off falsehood. We are not to lie. That is a part of the old man. It must be crucified with Christ. But then what are we to put on? What's the right action? What's the honoring to the Lord action? Well, Paul tells us here as he moves to the positive command. He says, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. You see, our relationships, especially within the body of Christ, are to be characterized by truthfulness. Christ himself is the way, the truth, and the life. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. God's word is truth, John 17, 17. When a person becomes a believer, he or she steps out of the domain of falsehood, out of the domain of darkness, and into the light, into the truth. And therefore, every form of lying 
is utterly inconsistent with the new self. Just think back about that list for a moment. And you may, you may think to yourself, well, I'm not a blatant liar. Flattery is lying. Budging on taxes is lying. Not giving uh, change back when we know we've been given too much is lying. It's deceit. Look at the motivation for the command. Paul says, speak the truth with your neighbor. Speak the truth with your neighbor. Let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Paul's motivation for truth is the intimate relationship that believers share with one another. He says, for we're members one of another. You see, in Christ, we have a a mutual solidarity. In other words, we belong to each other in Christ. There's a sense in which I belong to you, and you belong to me, and you belong to you, and you belong to you. In Christ, we belong to one another. One early church father related the truth of Uh, the truth in the body of Christ, to truth in the physical body. He said this. He said, let not the eye, speaking about the physical body, let not the eye lie to the foot, nor the foot to the eye. If there's a deep pit, and its opening is covered by reeds, and shall present to the eye the appearance of solid ground, will the foot lie to the eye? No. Likewise, if the eye sees a snake, will it lie to the foot? No. It won't. Likewise, we, members of the body of Christ, not the physical body, members of the body of Christ, are to be characterized by that which is truthful. Speaking the truth in love with one another. Why? Because we are members one to the other. The body of Christ cannot function properly if its members shade the truth with one another or fail to work honestly and lovingly with one another. We can't effectively minister to each other if if we're not speaking the truth in love with one another. You see, lying's not only wrong because it makes light of the intrinsic excellence of the truth, but also because it causes trouble, friction, disunity, and sadness in the church. Oh, that we would be characterized as a local church who speaks the truth one to the other and not lies. You want some application here? I would encourage you to memorize Matthew 5, 37. Jesus speaking, he says this, basically. You can go back and look at it and memorize the the full verse there. But he says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Let honesty characterize you. The new man in Christ is to be characterized by an increasingly changed tongue, an increasingly transformed tongue tongue. We are to put off lying. We're to put off falsehood, any form of deceit, and instead to put on the truth. And friends, let me tell you, that's something that you've got to remind yourself of every day when your feet hit the floor. Because we live in a world that is so ingrained to shade the truth. We live in a world that oozes with falsehood and lies. We can very easily jump in the stream and coast right down if we're not careful. Let us be characterized by a truthfulness. Let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Number two on your outline is this. Our life in Christ should be marked by an increasingly controlled temper. Our new life in Christ should be characterized, marked by an increasingly controlled temper. 
Our tongue should be changed. Our temper should be changed. Look at verses 26 and 27. Paul says this. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. You know, to be angry and not sin, that's the positive command here. In each of these verses, you'll see a negative command, a positive command, and you'll see a motivation for the command. Why, Paul? Why? He answers the why question in each of these verses. Be angry and do not sin. That's the positive command. You see, not all anger is sinful anger. Scores of Old Testament passages speak about the just anger of God against the wicked and even against his own when they persist in disobedience. God gets angry sometimes. David said that in Psalm 711. He said, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Jesus was angry on several occasions. Let me take you back to the day that Jesus walked in the temple and it was being used for things other than prayer. And Jesus cleared the place out. He was indignant. He was angry. Jesus was angered at the Pharisees when they tried to stop him from healing the man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. Mark's gospel tells us Jesus was angry, Mark 3, 5, with them. Indeed, we can even experience righteous anger. That's the very reason that Paul introduces the subject here, be angry and do not sin, which actually is a quotation of Psalm 4, 4. Paul's quoting the Old Testament here. And Paul does that oftentimes to give weight to his arguments, to give weight to his words. He reaches back and he quotes the Old Testament and applies it here to the New Testament church. Psalm 4.4, be angry and do not sin, written by David. Ponder in your own hearts and on your own beds and be silent. Be angry and do not sin. Aristotle, though he wasn't a Christian, did have significant influence on the early Christian church. Speaking about anger, this is what he said. He said, anyone can become angry. We know that well, because that's us. Anyone can become angry, but to be angry with the right person to the right degree, at the right time, for the right purpose, and in the right way. That is not easy. Boy, those are truthful words. Anyone can be angry. But to be angry with the right person, to the right degree, at the right time, for the right purpose, and in the right way, that's not easy. It's difficult for us sinners to practice pure, righteous anger because our emotions are so tainted by sin. You see, God's emotions, he has emotions. But they're not tainted by sin. One of the reasons that it's so difficult for us to pursue righteous anger is because our emotions are tainted by sin. You see, oftentimes our feelings, our pride, our self-image, they're all wrapped up in our reactions. And so oftentimes we're angered because someone steps on our toes. We're, we're angered because our, our pride is dented. Matthew Henry once said, if we would be angry and not sin, then we must be angry at nothing but sin. And we should be more jealous for the glory of God than for any interest of our own reputation. You see, there's, there's an anger that's not only righteous, but that is also required of us. And that is an anger against sin. We should be angered by sin. We should be filled with indignation at the dishonor of God and the suppression of his word. That should anger us. We should be angry at the lack of concern for God's holiness. And we shouldn't only be angered when we see it in others. We should also be brokenhearted when we see it existing in our own hearts. Because it resides there too. 
You see, genuine love, our love for God, our love for Christ, genuine love cannot help being angered at that which injures the object of its love. Genuine love cannot help but being angered by that which injures the object of his love. That's why it makes me angry when someone insults my spouse because she is the object of my love. But like Henry says, we must be very careful that our anger is motivated by God's dishonor and not our own. You see, that's the fine line between righteous anger and unrighteous anger. Let me ask you this question. When you think about your anger, just just think about the last 168 hours, Sunday to Sunday, the last week here. Is it precipitated more often because of the honor of God being slighted? Or is your anger more precipitated by your own honor being slighted? your own rights, perceived rights being infringed upon. I think if we're honest, most of our anger, and I'm in the crosshairs here, if we're honest, most of our anger is a result of how I believe, how you believe someone has transgressed me and not how God's righteous word has been transgressed. That is the cause of most of our anger. There is such a thing as righteous anger. I think we experience it far too little. Most of our anger, I presume, is unrighteous. If our anger is not free from injured pride, malice, or a spirit of revenge, then it has degenerated into sin. You ask yourself, well, when? When does anger become sin? Well, anger becomes sin when it's self-centered. Anger becomes sin when it's allowed to grow into resentment. And then is seen in angry outbursts. Anger becomes sin when it plots the downfall of another person. Anger becomes sin when it grows vengeful, vindictive, and mean. Anger becomes sin when it consumes our lives and all we can think about is the person we think wronged us. Anger becomes sin when it stifles our worship, when it hinders our faithfulness to God, when it fills us with bitterness and undermines our joy. And the list could go on and on. Those are just a few of the markers from, uh, to help us discern when anger has, has crossed over the tipping point from that which may have be, began as righteous indignation but has degenerated to unrighteous, sinful anger. That's when our our anger becomes sin. Where does our sinful, unrighteous anger come from? Where does it come from? Let me submit to you that unrighteous anger is the visible fruit of an idol factory that resides in each one of our hearts. Unrighteous anger is just the visible fruit, the visible expression, the visible manifestation of an idol factory that exists in every single one of our hearts. To say it another way, anger is our response to failed idolatry. Anger is our oftentimes response to failed idolatry. Let me define what an idol is here briefly. An idol is anything that you believe that you need apart from Jesus Christ for your satisfaction, for your fulfillment, for your worth, for your joy, for your protection, Anything that you think you need other than Christ, that you enthrone above Christ, that thing becomes an idol. 
Just like apple trees always produce apples and orange trees always produce oranges, track with me here, idolatries always produce anger. Idolatries always produce anger. You see, we were designed to find our satisfaction in Christ. We were designed to put our hope in Christ alone. We were designed to worship and serve Christ alone. But because we're sinful, we oftentimes seek satisfaction in people and things. We seek our hope in people and things. We put our our worship, we worship other things and people, namely ourselves. And those people and those things will fail us every single time. Go back to, just in your minds here, Romans one twenty five. This was, this was Paul's indictment uh, of, of, of sinners here. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. When we exchange the truth of God and we worship and serve created things, Other than God, can I tell you who we end up worshiping? We end up worshiping ourselves. We enthrone ourselves. We enthrone our desires. We enthrone our wants. We enthrone our demands. And those things become idols. And when someone else comes into the picture who grabs grabs the idol and shakes it a little bit, and there it is wobbling on the stand, and I fear that it may fall and shatter on the ground, the, the, the result is, I, is I, there's an outburst of anger. I respond in anger. Does that make sense? When we enthrone ourselves as God, and we enthrone our wants, our wills, our desires, they become idols. When we fear that other people will shake our idols, it angers us because we love our idols because they have become our God. Idolatries always produce anger. We end up worshiping and serving ourselves. We become the one who needs to be worshipped and honored and revered and respected and served. And as a result of our self-worship, we get self-protective of our perceived rights. And when those perceived rights are infringed upon by someone else, because we worship ourselves, we get angry. Here are some of the perceived rights that we think we have. We think we have a right to control personal belongings, a right to privacy, a right to, uh, to express our personal opinions, a right to earn and use money, a right to plan our own schedule, a right to respect, a right to choose our own friends, a right to uh, belong, to be loved, to be accepted, a right to be understood, a right to be supported, a right to make our own decisions, to determine our own future, to have good health, a right to date, a right to be married, a right to have children, a right to be protected and cared for, a right to be appreciated, a right to travel, a right to have the job we want, to good education, to be a beautiful person, to be treated fairly, to be desired, a right to have fun, a right to raise our children the way that we want, a right to security and safety, to fulfilled hopes and aspirations, a right to be successful, a right to have others obey us, a right to have it our own way, and a right to a life that is free of difficulties and free of problems. The only problem is, is that not one of those rights are guaranteed to us in Scripture. We think they are, And when we love ourselves more than we love God, we hold on to those rights. And when someone else comes into the picture that shakes that idol, anger is the result. That's why I say that anger is the the response to an idolatry factory, an idol factory in our hearts. Failed idolatry. Sinful anger occurs when we think that our rights have been stifled. 
You know, of the seven deadly sins mentioned in Scripture, anger in a very warped and sinful way possibly tastes the best. I mean, think about it. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over a grievance long past, to roll your tongue over the prospect of bitter confrontation that might still be to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you're given and the pain you're going to give back in many ways is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that you're wolfing, what you're wolfing down is your own self. The skeleton of the feast is you. Let me ask you this question. How many of us, how many of us are gnawing at our own souls by harboring anger, bitterness, envy, strife, or indignation towards others? How many of us are harboring that? It's just smoldering in our hearts. You see, contrary to popular thought, time doesn't relieve anger. Forgiveness and repentance do. Time doesn't make anger and bitterness and envy and strife go away. Forgiveness and repentance do. Sweep it under the rug and all you're doing is rearranging a mess. Shove it in a closet and you'll see it again. Forgiveness and repentance. We'll talk about forgiveness when we get down to verses 30 through 32. What do Paul's words, do not let the sun go down in your anger, mean? Look there at your Bible. Paul says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. What do those words mean? Well, in Jewish culture, sunset was regarded as a time limit for a whole host of activities. And here Paul uses that that, that expression not as a wooden law, but rather as an exhortation to deal with our anger promptly so that we aren't tempted to nurse it and let it boil. If we don't deal with our unrighteous anger quickly, swiftly, then it will sit there on the burner and simmer. If we allow our anger to fester, to swell, to surge for any extended amount of time, is to place ourselves in great danger as it gives the devil a foothold. That's why Paul says, don't give the devil an opportunity. You see, friends, anger is one of the widest gates through which we can let Satan enter. Anger is one of the widest gates through which we can let Satan enter. I mean, the very word opportunity there, Paul says, don't let the devil have an opportunity or don't give the devil an opportunity. That word opportunity literally means a place or a possibility or a chance. We could accurately translate that phrase, don't give the devil a chance to exert his influence. Don't give him an opportunity. You see, anger, whether it's righteous or unrighteous, either one, whether it's righteous or unrighteous, if it's courted, will give Satan happy opportunity to feed that anger with all kinds of self-pity and pride and self-righteousness and vengeance and defensive thoughts about our rights and every other sort of selfish sin. If we leave the door open there and we let anger fester and boil and simmer, then we are just giving happy opportunity to the devil. To feed that anger with self-pity, pride, vengeance, and all kinds of defensive thoughts. You see, anger, if it's allowed to smolder, turns into bitterness. Satan would love to entice you to harbor anger and bitterness, to withhold forgiveness from someone who's wronged you. Matter of fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul's talking about forgiveness there. He's teaching the Corinthians about forgiveness, and he says this, 
He says, I've forgiven for the sake of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Now, that all comes in the context of forgiveness. Thinking about being outwitted by Satan and being ignorant of his designs if we withhold forgiveness. What are Satan's designs or desires? Well, it's that you would withhold forgiveness. It's that you would, res- that you would restrain from, from giving grace to others. It's that you would fail to live out the gospel in your relationships. Brothers and sisters, don't be outwitted. Don't be ignorant. We're called to keep short accounts and to forgive others quickly. Harbored anger enslaves you to the person whom you are angry with. Unresolved anger, it's like acid. It just it eats away at you. It consumes your thoughts, it hurts others around you, and it hinders your relationship with Christ. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. It's not wooden law, but what Paul is saying is, brothers and sisters, when there is a, a seed of anger in your heart, deal with it timely. Deal with it timely. Don't let time lapse, because that will make the ember of anger grow and burn. Let me give you a few biblical weapons to help you put away unrighteous anger. These are on your outline, but you might want to write these down, or a couple of them. This is by way of some application here. Biblical weapons to help you put away unrighteous anger. Number one, we must see. You must see sin that is committed against you as being chiefly committed against God. All sin is first vertical before it's horizontal. We must see God as the the primary offended party always. We are never the primary offended party. Jonathan Edwards once wrote, Love for God is opposite to a disposition in men to be angry at others' faults, chiefly as they are themselves offended and injured by them. It rather disposes them to look at them as chiefly committed against God. I mean, that's what David said in Psalm 51, right? He had committed adultery with Bathsheba, and he says, against you and only you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Paul wasn't negating the fact that there wasn't horizontal sin there with Bathsheba, but he understood that his sin was first and foremost an offense against God. It was first vertical before it's horizontal. We must remember that. That is a biblical weapon in dealing with unrighteous anger is seeing sin committed against me as being first and foremost committed against the Lord. He is the primary offended party. Second biblical weapon. We must consider the rights of Christ to be angry, but then consider how he endured the cross as an example of long-suffering. I mean, if anybody had the right to be angry, it was Jesus. It was Jesus. But he endured the cross as an example of long-suffering, of patience. Peter said it this way in 1 Peter chapter 2. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might also follow in his steps. We need to grow in being long-suffering, long-wicked, that we don't have a short fuse, and that we're not quick to explode. Consider the rights of Christ to be angry, but then how he endured the cross as an example of long-suffering. That is a biblical weapon against unrighteous anger. Number three, You must consider how much you've been forgiven and how much mercy you've been shown. Those who give little grace, those who forgive little, are those who understand very little of their own forgiveness, if they've been forgiven their sin at all. 
if we are not quick to forgive others, if we are not quick to extend grace and to extend mercy, that is, brothers and sisters, a commentary on our understanding of how greatly we have been forgiven. Consider how much you've been forgiven and how much mercy you've been shown. Again, we'll be here in just another week, but down in verse 32, Paul says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That's your motive for forgiveness. God in Christ forgave you. And I'm a great sinner. Fourth weapon. You must consider your own sinfulness and then take the beam out of your own eye. That's a weapon against unrighteous anger. Consider your own sinfulness and then take the beam out of your own eye. You know, oftentimes we are angered when others do the very things that we ourselves are guilty of doing. It just makes me angry when you do it. I'm quick to let myself off the hook. I'm quick to justify my own actions. But boy, I want you to come and to bear the full weight of the law when you do it. And I'm angered. Matthew writes, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye. And then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Consider your own sinfulness. And then take the beam out of your own eye. It's a great weapon for dealing with unrighteous anger. Number five, confess your sin of anger to God as well as the one who offends you. This is a, a healing or a, a restorative act. James said that. He said, therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. Confess your anger. Confess your sin. You see, someone may have sinned against me, but when I'm angered because I feel like my rights have been infringed upon, I've just sinned against the Lord. There's two guilty parties now. And then lastly, when we're tempted to be angry in an unrighteous way, we must trust that God will vindicate our just causes. Just is a key word there. We must trust that God will vindicate our just causes and settle accounts better than we ever could. You see, either our offender will pay for his or her wrong, or Christ has paid for his or her wrong for them. But either way, this means that our payback is either double jeopardy or an offense to the cross. You catch that? Our payback is either double jeopardy or an offense to the cross. I mean, that's what Paul meant in Romans 12, 9, when he said, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I'll repay, says the Lord. We must entrust our cause to the Lord just as Jesus did. Peter tells us that when he, Jesus, was reviled, he did not revile in return, when he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting his cause to him who judges justly. You see, that removes the, the, the need in me to pay back. That removes the need in, that I think I may have temporarily in a lapse of, of sound biblical judgment to enact retribution. We must trust that God will vindicate our just causes and settle accounts better than we ever could. Either our offender will pay for his or her wrong, or Christ has paid it for them, but either way, it's double jeopardy or an offense to the cross. 
Let's look at number three this morning in the remaining few minutes that we have. Number three is our new life in Christ should be marked by a desire to give instead of take. Our new life in Christ should be marked by a desire to give instead of take. Let me draw your attention to verse 28. Paul says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Paul begins verse 28 with the negative command there. It's, let the thief no longer steal. Word thief there, it's the Greek word klepto. It's where we get our English word, kleptomaniac person who has a compulsive urge to steal. You see, stealing, like lying and sinful anger, that's, that, that was a part of the, the old man. That's part and parcel of our former manner of life before Christ. But the admonition for the new man in Christ is that we work honest labor. That we no longer steal. You know, a good amount of the work in Paul's day fell under the category of either day labor or skilled tradesmen whose work was somewhat seasonal or temporary in nature. And so when individuals were out of work, there wasn't any welfare system to assist them. And so as a result, many of them resorted to stealing in order to maintain themselves and their families. But for the Christian, stealing is to be replaced with hard work. The same ingenuity and effort that was once devoted to theft is now to be given to honest hardworking labor. You might be sitting there thinking to yourself, I can't remember the last time that I stole something. Uh, you know, I can't, I can't remember the last time that I walked in the convenience store and stole something. I went to Walmart or Target and stole something. Well, just like lying has many forms, so does theft. We steal from God when we fail to worship him as we ought. Or when we set our own interests and desires above his interests or desires. We steal from God when we fail to honor him with our lives. We steal from God when we fail to tell others about him. We steal from God when we waste the time that he's given us, the talents he's given us, the gifts he's given us, and the resources that he has entrusted to us. We steal from our employers when we fail to give our best work, when we leave work early, or when we use our employer's time for things other than work. We steal from others when we borrow things and fail to return them. We steal from others when we take their reputation by speaking negatively about them. We steal when we take money off the dresser or the counter that belongs to dad. We steal when we renege on debt. Not telling the clerk that overpays you in change is stealing. You see, there's simply uh, no end to the ways that we can steal. And whatever the ways and whatever the chances for being caught, stealing is sin and has no part in the new walk or the new life, the new man in Christ. You see, when we think about theft in those terms, it puts us all in the crosshairs. We're all guilty of klepto, thievery. Now look at the positive command. Paul says, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his hands. The word labor there means to work to the point of weariness. It's hard work. You see, what may have been obtained previously with little effort, just swiping something off the shelf, is now to be achieved through diligent work. You see, the importance of hard work was very uh, clear to Paul. To the Thessalonians, he said this, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you are in idleness, Not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we commend and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. You see, as you survey the men in particular that God called in Scripture, 
They were all working when God called them. Moses was caring for sheep. Gideon was threshing wheat. David was tending his father's flock. The first four disciples were either casting nets or mending nets. And Jesus himself was a hardworking carpenter. What's the motivation for this command? Look back at the text. The motivation for the command is that we might have something to share with anyone in need. Paul wants the Ephesians, and we as well, to stop stealing and instead to practice honesty. But he wants more than that. It's not just that he wants honesty, though that is a great motivation. Paul knows that underneath the sin of stealing lies a much more basic human fault. It's that of selfishness. It's a selfish heart. It's I want what I want, and I think I deserve it. And if you tell me I don't deserve it or try to get in the way of what I think I deserve, then I get angry about it. So I can be a thief and have unrighteous anger all at the same time, swirling around in this heart of mine. Even honest labor can become a selfish thing. So Paul strikes at the very root of theft by turning the attention of the thief away from himself into the needs of others. You see, Paul strives here to replace the selfish root of theft with a new interest that's accompanied by lasting joy, that of giving to others in need. You see, pre-Christ, all we were concerned with was taking. How, How can I better myself? How can I acquire? Me, 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 me. But now in Christ... The new manner of life, the new way of life, is that I seek to give instead of seek to take. Sharing with, one another, with others in need. You see, working in order to have is perhaps the American ideal. The prevailing thought is, if you've earned it, you should have it. But working in order to have is not the Christian ideal. The most radical thing about this text is that we're commanded to do all of our secular work with a view of meeting the needs of others. You see, you can live to have, either legally or illegally, through honest work or through through stealing, or you can live to give. That's precisely what Paul's encouraging us to do here. You see, giving forces us to deal with our selfish hearts, and that's a good thing. Friends, how are you doing in the area of truthful speech? Are you speaking the truth with one another? That's not just the outright blatant lie. How about controlling your anger? Not only a tempered tongue, but a tempered temper. Unrighteous anger. How are you doing at giving instead of taking? Are we growing in those areas? Those are three of the five marks that exist here in chapter 4, the end of chapter 4, that should be uh, evident in the life of a truly converted, growing Christian. Do those things mark us to some degree? Is our life marked by an increasingly transformed tongue, an increasingly controlled temper, and a desire to give instead of to take? Pray that the Lord makes it so.